Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, good morning again. I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas yesterday. I'm honestly really proud that so many of you are here. I mean, it, it, was, it was blustery out there this morning. And as, as Justin mentioned, too, there's not even just a storm component. There's just a yesterday eating component, <laughs> right? You know, C.S. Lewis, he, he said this about friendship, is you know that, there's, that you have a true friend when they begin to talk about something and you go, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. So when Justin mentioned that prime rib hangover, I go, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Well, if you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at the church. And it is a privilege of mine to be able to open up the Bible once again, like we do every single Sunday. And if you have a Bible in front of you, and I hope you do, go ahead and find your way to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. That's going to be the last book in the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, go ahead and grab one of those Black Pew Bibles. You can take that home. That could be our gift to you. Put your name in it. Take notes. And in those Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 1036. 1036. Now, before I actually read the text for us this morning, I want to give a little bit of a setup to why are we looking at this passage in the Bible in particular. I know many of you have been, but just in case you, you haven't been with us during our Advent season, uh, we've been walking through uh, basically four songs or four prophecies or four poems that we find in the book of Luke. These are basically songs that surrounded the birth narrative of Christ. And it's been a wonderful time. I hope that it's been benefiting you as much as it's been benefiting me to just remember who Jesus came for. Who are the people who were given that news first and really the substance of that first advent and why it was so important. But what does the word Advent mean? It means the coming or the arrival. And as I mentioned earlier, we're now waiting for another Advent, that Jesus has come, but we are looking forward to him coming again. Because all of what he accomplished in his first coming is important to us, right? It makes a whole lot of difference. It makes what makes you a Christian by him coming and living and dying and resurrecting. But we know that he is not finished. Because those themes of hope and peace and joy and love, they are not perfected yet in this world, but one day they will be. And so in the book of Revelation, what we're going to see is another song being sung. But this one is the song of ultimate victory. This is the song of the second advent. This is the one that's not saying, in one day it will be perfected. It's saying, that perfection has come. It's a song that I believe that many of us in this room will be singing one day. We'll be singing one day. But let me go ahead and let's stop there before I actually read for us like I normally do. And I'm just going to ask for prayer. I ask that you pray for me as I pray for you, and then we will read Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Well, Father, I want to just take another moment and come before you uh, and just confess that we are in desperate need for you to move in our lives. That, Lord, we are in 
a desperate need for you to illuminate this text, for you to be able to give us a, a right understanding of who you are and what you've done and, and a right understanding for us to fully understand why is this song being sung for all of eternity. God, I pray for every single person in this room that you just give us grace to be able to do that. I pray for our kiddos and our teachers who are leading our youngest minds and youngest disciples in this church. God, I pray that you'd give them grace as well. And that all of us would be able to walk out of here today loving you more than when we first walked in. It's in your mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if hopefully you guys have found your way to Revelation 15. Let me go ahead and just read the first four verses. They'll be on the screen as well. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yet we are thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. All right. Now, before I can even really get to the content of the song, I need to do even more unpacking, because we are jumping into, really, the heart of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I need to give some framework to what we're speaking into, because if you are new to Bible study, or maybe you've even been a Christian for some time at this point, I would guess if we were to take a poll, when it comes to the book of Revelation in particular, you would say, hey, this, this book in particular, this kind of freaks me out. Like, this, this one gets me really confused. This one, I kind of, I'll, I'll read anything except for this one, if I'm being honest. And why is that? Why is that? Because the language and the genre of the book of Revelation is, is different than other parts of the Bible. It's filled with poems and what's known as apocalyptic literature. And so there's lots of symbols and metaphors, and sometimes that language can stifle us in our understanding of it. We get caught up of, of looking at, hey, is this this, or does this mean something else than what it actually says? And you seem to just get confused at least, that's how it, it happens to a lot of us. So let me give you a little bit of a breakdown, just a, a very broad view of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation because it was written by the Apostle John. And the Apostle John was given these revelations from Jesus himself. John was an apostle of Jesus. He was basically banished to this island known as Patmos as a punishment for preaching the gospel. And as he is there, he's basically visited by by Jesus himself. And he says, John, I want to show you some visions of the future. I want to give you some insight of what I'm going to do, and I want you to record these in order to pass on for the encouragement for the rest of the Christians in the first century. And so that's what this book is filled of. It's filled of these revelations that Jesus gives John. Now, the first three chapters are these specific revelations to churches that existed at that time. But then, starting in chapter 4, all of a sudden, it kind of zooms way out. 
outside of just the seven churches, to now, what is Jesus doing in the last days? Or what is Christ going to do about the world? Or what's going to happen before he returns? So starting in verse 4, we are given what the throne room, or chapter 4, we're given what the throne room of heaven looks like. We're given this grand view of who's going to be there. All of the people, all of the nations celebrating and longing for Jesus. But then quickly, in the book of Revelation, John is given these visions of how Jesus is actually going to consummate this reality. How is Jesus going to take what is wrong in this world and make it right? So there's pictures and visions of how Jesus is going to take a sinful, broken world and begin to consummate his kingdom. And how do you consummate a kingdom? Well, you first do by the removal of its enemies. Where Jesus takes the rule of evil and sin and bondage and he begins to flip it on its head. And here in Revelation, what we are seeing is where John is given another vision, another sign. Another snapshot, really, into what is God doing as the war against sin intensifies, leading up to his second return. But for our time today, hopefully I didn't freak you out enough, our time today, I'm really going to focus in on this particular song. What are they singing? Why are they singing it? And why is it called the Song of Moses? I mean, that should be a question we ask. Like, Moses was, right, he was a, he was a person, a figure Way in the Old Testament. What, what do we mean that we're going to be singing the song of Moses? What does Moses have to do with this? Well, here's why it's called the song of Moses. Because there's a greater fulfillment of what Moses did is going to be happening at the return of Christ. A greater exodus, if you will. So f- the first thing I want to show you is that the song of Moses points out the remembrance of redemption. The remembrance of redemption. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Hopefully you have a a Bible. Go ahead and flip it way to the left and go to the book of Exodus. That second book in the Bible. And jump over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Because here's where we actually see the first song of Moses. The first song of Moses. And we have the first two verses up here on the screen. Let me show these to you. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the first song of Moses. Now, in case you're not familiar with the context of what the first song of Moses is, let me unpack that for you, because it's important for us to understand. Moses and the people of God were singing about their victory over Egypt, over Egypt and Pharaoh. You see, God has always had this plan of redemption uh, for people that he has chosen to redeem. These people are known as the people of Israel, and at this point in history, this nation of Israel had been enslaved for about 400 years by Egyptians. They were slaves to them. They're the ones that probably built the pyramids. Now, 
God never forgot his promise to his people that, that he was going to bring about this, this, these people and this redemption and this victory to them. But 400 years had gone by. And then what God does is he raises up a man named Moses. Moses is going to be basically uh, the leader to lead the people out of, out of Exodus or out of Egypt through this what is known as the Exodus into this promised land away from the bondage that they have with the Egyptians. And most of you guys know this story, right? Moses comes and he says, let my people go. This is what God has told me and told you to do. And at first, Pharaoh resists, right, mightily. God sends these different plagues onto the Egyptians to kind of get their attention. He's like, no, I'm very serious. You need to let these people go. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, you can go. You can go. And so all of Israel is then making its way towards the promised land. But Pharaoh decided, this is not a good idea. I shouldn't have let these people go. This is my labor. This is my free labor. What am I going to do if these people actually leave? And so Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, I need to get these people back. And so he's chasing the nation of Israel, and he's going to basically capture them again and bring them back home. Well, Israel is making their way, and they get to where? They get to the Red Sea, and there's no way to get across it. There's not time to go around it. The Egyptians are going to catch them. And so despite the impossibility of their surroundings, the impossibility of their circumstances, God moves. He moves so much that he actually splits the Red Sea, doesn't he? He splits the Red Sea to where it's basically this pathway of dry land with walls. The sea is like walls of glass on either side that they are able to walk through to the other side. And so they do. They start walking through. Israel starts walking through. Well, the Egyptians see Israel's making their escape, and they do what? They follow them. But once Israel got to the other side, what happens? God allows the walls of sea to enclose down onto the Egyptians, and it says that it kills them all. It kills them all. And so here in chapter 15, what we are seeing, church, in Exodus 15, is they are bursting into song for what God had done. They are bursting into song because God once again has proved that what he says will come to pass will come to pass. That God is not thwarted by circumstances. That even when we have no idea of how God is going to take an impossible situation and use it for his glory and his purposes, he does. How many of us just simply need to be reminded of that again this morning? There is nothing in this life. There is no circumstance in your life that God says, I didn't see that one coming. I don't know what to do about that. You're on your own. That never happens to his people, church. And that's really what the anthem we've been singing about this last month. The anthem that God always fulfills his promises, that he's always moving according to his will. And singing is actually a really important component of that. That God has wired us by being made in his image that we're actually singing people. So the reason why we sing on Sundays, church, is not because we don't know what to do before and after the service. Or before and after the preaching. We do it because we actually see it commanded in Scripture that we are to be a singing people. It's a way for us to express the promises of God. It's a way for our own hearts to be reminded that God always does what He wills. So now go ahead and turn back to the book of Revelation then. Let me show you then how this connects. Why is this called the Song of Moses? 
Well, this song here in Revelation is a better fulfillment of redemption. It's a better exodus. Like the first song of Moses, we see that it's sung next to a sea. Next to a sea. Like the first song, it's a song about redemption of God's people. It's a, re- it's a song about the redemption of God's people out of the hands of its captors. Like the first song, it communicates how God made a way for his people where there previously was none. Like the first song, we see that it comes after a sacrificial lamb has been offered for the atonement of their sins. And truly, this actually starts pointing out something very important for you to understand in all of your Bible study. That the Old Testament church, the Old Testament is always predicting or foreshadowing or trying to get your mind to see that it's showing you what Jesus will ultimately do. Old Testament is all about him. It's always predicting or showing or modeling what is God is going to do in full one day. So just as the first lamb was shed before the exodus happened, here in Revelation, this is after the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus himself, was killed for our sins, and his blood was spilt so the wrath of God would be passed over us. We see that Jesus is the better Moses that leads his people not into a promised land, but the promised land. That Jesus is a better prophet, a better priest, a better king, whose glory and whose reign will never end. Will never end. So if you have those Bibles open, look at Revelation 15 again. Look at verse 3. Let me just point out a few things. Because you'll notice that this song actually has two titles, doesn't it? It says that it's a song of Moses, but also what? The song of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the world. So for the remainder of the time, I want to just show these aspects of what this song tells us and how it actually is connected to all the songs that we have been singing. All the songs we've been looking at in the Gospel of Luke like the song of Mary, like the song of Zechariah, right? Like the song of Simeon, all of those songs had this already but not yet component to it. So what do we see? Well, if you look at verse 3 again, it says that it, this is a song about great, the great and amazing deeds of our Lord God, the Almighty, how just and true are his ways, and how he is the king of the nations, So first thing we see is that this song is a song of adoration and praise. You notice who's not mentioned in the song? Me, or you, right? Has nothing to do with us. And that's actually really good, right? When we, especially we're in a season, right, where we can be so focused in on us and our needs, right, and and us getting everything we want. But yet what we see here in the book of Revelation is there will be a time when we are not tempted to think about ourselves anymore. That there will not be this, this gravitational pull to be self-centered, but rather in this perfected state, into this ultimate sanctification, we are going to be rightly be able to sing about Jesus and him alone. And him alone. It's a song exclusively about Christ and his majesty. But it's also a song about his victory. Right? The victory that was accomplished on the cross. When Jesus actually became sin, right? And he atoned for us. A sinner 
was substituted for a non-sinner. Jesus, who didn't deserve to die. Us, who had every right to. This is a song of redemption. And that's why if you look closely at verse 3, it says, Great and amazing are your deeds. Not about, it's not about my deeds. It's not what I've done in this world. Are we called to do good things? Right? If you're a Christian, are you called to, to do certain things with your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's always in response to what Jesus has done. And here in this particular song, church, we get just to sim- sing simply about what Christ and what he has done. It, all me- it also mentions that he is mighty and his ways are just and true. See, one day we'll be able to see the victory of Christ realized more and more and more. Now, for those who have rejected this Christ, rejected this atonement, rejected his work on the cross, don't do it now. But actually, if you were to start reading it again in, the, in chapter 16, you actually see what the due penalty is for that. It's a hard scene to read. It's a hard scene to even think about. But going back to Revelation 15, jump down to verse 4. Jump down to verse 4. Where it says that all nations will come and worship you. Will come to worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there is coming a day, church, when all nations, all people will realize that God and God alone is holy. Holy meaning pure. Holy meaning without sin. Holy meaning completely set apart, unlike anything else that this world has to offer. That Jesus will be recognized as holy and true. Now here's why that's important for us to understand. That means for us as a church, when we say that Jesus is the way, we're not saying that he is just one way, but the only way. And we can have great comfort and hope knowing that what Christ says is, you can only come to the Father through me. Jesus says here in Revelation 15 that we're actually going to be singing that to its utmost perfection, that he alone is holy and pure. It reminds me that of what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians, if you remember when we walked through that book, when he said in chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's a future reality. A future reality. But we're not having to wonder, is Jesus just one way? And I can just try to tell people, you just got to find your own way. No, we call him to the one way, church. That's what we're going to be singing about. We're not going to be singing about how we just happened to find one way that got us to Christ and his eternal kingdom. We're singing about how he was the way to him. I think if we're, if we're honest, we should have a lot of sobriety with that then. Right? A lot of mercy that's really given to us. That we're not left in the dark. Right? Every single one of us right now in this, in this room, we are hearing about what Christ has done. Who Christ is. What Christ has accomplished. Do you see the mercy of that? The mercy that has been shown to us. That we have a Bible in our own language. That we can read and go, he wins. He wins. We can recognize him as Savior and Lord today. We don't have to wonder if he will be one day. 
And truthfully, I think the reason why we have this song recorded for us is so that we can start preparing ourselves to sing this song. That kind of, you know when, a, when an artist, a, a musical artist, before they're about to release an album, usually they release like one EP song, right? One individual record to kind of build that momentum to all the songs that are about to be released. This is kind of that, right? It's a foreshadow. We're getting the one song of the track that we're going to be able to sing and hear, and I bet there's a whole lot of better songs to come. But we're given a really good one recorded for us and access to it right now. This song also reminds us of the fulfillment of Simeon's song. If you remember, Simeon, when he was looking and beholding baby Jesus, and he said that you are going to be the Savior in light to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. And I pointed out, that means that Jesus was going to be a global Savior. Well, here we see that he is a Savior to all nations. A fulfillment of that. A fulfillment of the very thing that Simeon wanted. And wanted us to learn and grow in. See, Christ has always been and always will be a Savior for all people. For all people. Meaning that there's not a socioeconomic class. There's not an ethnicity, right? There's not a place where you've grown up. There's not a title in which you have or not have that makes you, uh, I guess, a, a candidate for salvation or not. Christ came for all people who would believe and trust in him. All nations will come to him. So the nations that have a shame culture will be able to find that they no longer have to be shameful anymore. That they have a perfect Savior who is not looking at them to to earn their right in the family. Or maybe in a self-driven culture, we can go, I don't have to be all things to all people anymore. I don't have to make a name for myself. I don't have to be an influencer. I can just be me And God says, yeah, I chose you. Or whatever cultures are out there, because there's a lot of different cultures in our world, even in our own community. And what this text, what this song is saying, church, is it's a song for all nations to get behind. Now, lastly, I want you to see at the end of verse 4, excuse me, it says, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, this is really cool. I think this is what he's getting at. That there are things that God does in this world that we don't understand why he does them. That there are things that God does in this world that we're like, I have no idea what you are doing with this, Lord. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a death, right? Maybe it's just a circumstance. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's some kind of family relationships. Maybe it's an addiction. You go, I don't know what you are going to do with this, God. I don't know why this is present in my life. Well, here's what verse 4 is telling us. That there's going to be a day where God will remove all the tapestry of his sovereign goodness. And he'll say, let me show you all my righteous and just acts. Let me show you why I did the things I did. Let me show you why I was good, even in those circumstances that you did not understand. You see, we have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions on why God does what he does. It's kind of like what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. When he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. 
but then face to face. Speaking of this day, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, Christian, let me encourage you with something this morning. That someday, whenever this day is, we don't know for sure. Whenever this day is, all the questions that you have inside your heart will be answered on that day. They will be answered on that day. That's something to look forward to. But notice that comes at the end of praising God and his just and mighty deeds the whole time. See, we don't deserve to know why God does what he does. But yet, in his grace, even this final consummation of his kingdom, he's still giving grace to us. He's still revealing to us how he is good and just and right. Now, last point, and hang in there with me. We have to ask ourselves, who is singing this song, though? Right? Who is actually singing this song? Well, I think verses 2 and 3 give us some clues, some insight of who is actually singing this song. Where John points out, it's those who have conquered the beast in its image and those who are described as servants of God. But how does someone become a conqueror, right? How does someone be, actually become a servant of God then? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. If that's the description, if that's what, these, what John is describing here, who are these people? Would I be amongst them? Well, let me remind you of some of the songs that we've been looking at this past month. Mary described herself as a servant of the Lord. The angels described themselves as servants of the Lord, coming to give good news to servants of the Lord. Zechariah was serving in the temple when the angel visited him. And Simeon, when he saw the baby Jesus, he said, now I can depart in peace. But he says, your servant can depart in peace. You see, every single one of the songs we've been looking at there's actually been this identity of servanthood. I'm a servant of God amidst it. Now, what is that language getting at then? Like, what does that actually mean? Well, there's a couple of different ways that that word servant means. You might have even have a foothold in your Bible. Uh, if you were to drop down, it'd give you kind of the Greek term. And it's usually mostly translated bondservant. Bondservant. And that's actually a really important concept for us to understand, because what a bondservant was, was someone who has been bought, basically bought and redeemed for another purpose. And so to be a bondservant meant that you actually belong to somebody else. For whatever reason, that you belong to somebody else. But the Bible then actually uses this language that you're a bondservant of Christ. Now here's why that's actually good news. We're all servants to something. Some of us are servants to careers or you know, some kind of self-image right, or some kind of success. Every single one of us has a master, something that is dictating what is most important in our life. Sometimes that's ourselves and our own thoughts. But what the Bible is constantly trying to get our minds around is you don't want to be the God of your own life. And you don't want those temporal things also to be your master, because what is going to happen? They are going to let you down. They are going to hurt you, right? You can work your whole way in a career, right? You can give your life to it. And guess what? The moment that you retire, there's going to be somebody filling your spot. 
it will move on without you. Or think of yourself. The reason why you can't be your master is because how many times do you let yourself down? How many times do you do the very things you told yourself that you would never do? Or let me ask it a different way. How often are you all knowledgeable or all powerful or all present? Probably not very often. Or truthfully, never. You are going to disappoint yourself and you are going to disappoint others. So when you, when it says, the Bible says that you're a bondservant of Christ, it means that Christ is your master. That means that you don't have to work for your identity anymore. He actually gives you an identity. That you don't have to work for your, your individuality. That he actually gives you that. Your personhood. He sanctifies even your personality. That you don't have to be something that you're not. See, the best master to have is a good one. And the best one is Jesus himself. So when you think about servanthood in the Bible church, we have to kind of take away kind of the negative connotation that we have about bond servant or belonging to somebody else. There is some horrendous evil that has happened in our world and specifically our country when it comes to owning other individuals. I don't doubt that in the least bit. But when the Bible uses the term bond servant, or truthfully you could even use the word slave in some places, to be a slave of Christ means that you have the best and most righteous master and authority over your life. That's actually really good news. So we see these people are ones that are bondservants of Christ. Those have been bought with a price. Those who belong to somebody else. And who are the people who belong to somebody else? The ones who needed to be redeemed. Right? The ones who needed to be bought out of their enslavement to sin and to self-pursuit and to self-godhood. And we've come under the banner of the one and true God. And we belong to him now because of his work on the cross. So it means that when you actually look at the cross, and you think about the cross of Jesus when she died for, died on for you, you go, that counted for me. I was in need of that. That wasn't just for some other people who couldn't get their lives together. That was for me. And now that the life that you have, you realize it's actually been given to you by another. That you live because you belong to somebody else. But it gets better, church. It gets better than just being a servant of Christ. It says that you're also a conqueror, right? Remember what I said, this song is a song about victory. The song about victory. And so when Jesus actually rose from the grave and he ascended back to his throne, it demonstrated to all of the world that he had conquered Satan, sin, and death. So what does it mean then to be a conqueror of the beast in its image? Right? What does it mean that of all those things that we tend to kind of get tongue-twisted about or not know when it comes to the book of Revelation? What is the mark? Right? What is the beast? Well, here, if we look at just a plain reading of Scripture, to be a conqueror means to be a Christian. So if you're, you don't have to worry about what is the mark or what is the beast. If you are a Christian, if you have believed in Christ, it says that you are a conqueror of those things. It's not like God has one plan of redemption and one sense of assurance from Genesis to the book of Jude, and all of a sudden he changes his game plan in the book of Revelation. If you belong to him now, you will always belong to him. Now, teaser alert. I'm going to be speaking about the assurance that we have in God next week. So I'm not going to unpack that in full right now. But you can have assurance. Remember who this book was originally written to? 
John was given these revelations to speak truth into first century Christians first and foremost. Now, it's recorded in all of Scripture for us to be used today, but it was primarily given to first century Christians to encourage them. So I don't know why, as Christians today, we look at the book of Revelation and we absolutely lose our minds at times and go, well, I need to figure this out. I need to figure that out. I need to know all these details. That's not the point. The point of this is to encourage you that you know who wins in the end and that you belong to him, Christian. That's the point of this all. So if you're wondering, okay, what does it mean to be a conqueror? What does it mean to conquer the beast in its image? It means to belong to Christ. That's what I hope you walk out of here today with. It means to belong to him. Don't, don't buy into the, the stuff that sometimes gets circulated that, you know, you can, you can lose your salvation if you do this or don't do that. Or this person is coming. He's going to take Christians with him. Right? He's going to take them to hell. That doesn't happen. If you are a conqueror now, and Paul says to the Romans that we are actually more than conquerors now for those who have trusted and believed in Christ, we will be conquerors then. All right, church. So lastly then, as we think about these final moments of song, I pray for each and every one of us that this would not just be a song that we just go, that was nice, and we move on. The reason why I wanted to do a bonus Advent song during these weeks is because this is a song that we're going to continue to sing every day, every year, until Christ comes back, and then we're going to see it or sing it in full one day with the full chorus of God's redeemed people, with all of the conquerors. That's going to be a really neat day. So church, let me go ahead and end this way. I want to just read verses 3 and 4 again. I just want to read these words over you, and I pray that every single one of us would go, I'm going to sing this one day. I'm going to sing this in full. If you're not quite sure where you're at, right, you're just visiting, you know, this morning, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Uh, One is you're welcome here, you're always welcome here. But I would encourage you to believe in Christ right now. Believe not just in the baby that came in the manger, but the one who grew up and went to the cross on your behalf. The one who ascended back to his throne after rising from the grave, conquering all the things that enslave us now. Jesus is the ultimate victor. That's what the first century Christians need to remember. Is it important for us to remember that Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross? Absolutely. But we also don't stop there we start singing about what Christ's ultimate victory is going to look like. So let me read verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Church, let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, as we just come to a close uh, in our time in the Word, I want to just thank you. Thank you for giving us the the pre-release of the album of heaven that we're able to sing and to know the victory that we will be able to 
to sing about in full. That this is already but not yet mentality. And even as we find ourselves in this in-between of Advents, God, I thank you that it's not an in-between that's, that's full of a bunch of confusion of maybe we got it wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he was. But rather, we wait patiently, knowing that the song of Moses and the Lamb is coming. And to that end, we will always rejoice. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.